What would you do? What would you draw if I asked you to draw evolution? It's uh, an exercise I quite often conduct with my third year University of Auckland Evolution of Cognition class. Uh, and when I ask them this, uh, I get a range of sort of artistic endeavors, uh, ranging from this uh, <laughs> through to some quite magnificent productions, actually. Uh, but there's a common theme that runs throughout uh, all their artistic representations of evolution. Uh, a theme that's reflected in the kind of popular view of evolution as a linear and progressive process. Uh, and we can see it uh, in all these things, including advertising. And uh, in the stereotypical image of linear progressive evolution, you go from the, the dark hunched over primate, primate to an increasingly more upright uh, white European male. Uh, and then that crowning of cultural achievements, Guinness. So that's the linear and progressive view of evolution, a view that can be traced back uh, at least as far uh, as the Aristotelian scala naturae, where there was an in inanimate matter at the bottom, uh, sponges, mollusks, uh, reptiles, uh, mammals, and humans. At the top, of course, uh, just below uh, angels who are just below God. That linear view uh, and progressive view of evolution, of course, was the one that was totally rejected by Darwin. In The Origin of Species, there was only one figure, and that figure, very famously, was Darwin's Tree of Life. And in the Tree of Life, there is no linear progression. There is no grand onwards and upwards single kind of narrative. Evolution is a tree or a bush, not a ladder. All current species at the tips of the tree are equally evolved. Um, and that's how we should think about evolution today. But since Darwin's kind of revolutionary kind of tree thinking, people have often wanted to wed in some kind of linear notions of evolution uh, and try and make them compatible with a tree. So for example, this is how Heckel uh, drew uh, an evolutionary tree. And so although you can see it's branching, you can see that there's also a main trunk leading, of course, to humans uh, at the very pinnacle. And this kind of view of evolution as a tree, but a tree that's really leading to us, is very dominant uh, in psychology and comparative psychology. I happen to steal this figure from, uh, which means it's probably not copyrighted, um, uh, from a psychology textbook. And you can see, although there's a tree, of course the tree is arranged again to have humans uh, at the top. Now, in a very famous article, Hodgson Campbell uh, did a brilliant attack on this kind of implicit linear progressive theory in the study of comparative psychology. Uh, in their famous paper, Scala Naturae, or Why There Is No Theory in Comparative Psychology, they said, well, if there is any theory, it's, it's a kind of implicit one where people are comparing current fish with current frogs, with current lizards, with current pigeons, with current rats, with current monkeys, and with humans. Uh, why? What's the implicit kind of theory? Well, given that we know that current humans didn't evolve from current kind of monkeys, and that current fish, current lizards didn't evolve from current frogs, they say that's a fundamentally flawed kind of uh, comparison. 
Uh, all current species are equally evolved. They've all evolved as part of a vast evolutionary tree reflecting divergence and adaptation to particular ecological niches. This is not an evolutionary sequence. The way of arranging things should not be on a linear scale, but on a, on a tree. Uh, and that's why they said the kind of thing that psychologists were doing at the time, ranking uh, different species uh, on various uh, tasks, often gave very inconsistent measures. Because the implicit theory was there should be some linear relationship, when actually it had differential evolution adapting in different lineages to different kinds of environments. Okay. So that's the past. We shouldn't be thinking in terms of linear progressive narratives. We should be thinking in terms of trees. Uh, and these days, in evolutionary biology, phylogenetic trees absolutely rule. Go to any conference or uh, uh, open any evolutionary textbook, and you'll see wall-to-wall -wall evolutionary trees. The vast availability of sequence data and uh, powerful computational methods mean that we can now make quite accurate inferences about these family trees or phylogenies. So here's uh, a phylogenetic tree for primates uh, showing humans as sister taxa to bonobos and uh, chimpanzees. And you can see the branch thinks are scaled proportional to time. So there's a split between the chimpanzee lineage and the human lineage uh, about six uh, million years ago. Uh, that's how evolutionary biologists uh, commonly uh, analyze uh, molecular evolution today. And just to show you how dramatic the kind of growth of this kind of tree thinking that had its birth, perhaps, or one of its births, uh, in Darwin's ideas, is here's um, a plot of uh, phylogen star in the Scopus database and titles of papers over recent years. And you can see there's been a spectacular growth. And this year alone, the term phylogeny or phylogenetics has been used in titles of over 2,500 publications. And what do people do with phylogenetics? Well, it's a lot more than just building trees. The tree for evolutionary biologists is the beginning. Once you have the tree, you can then use the tree to make inferences about dates, about relative rates of change, perhaps relative rates of change in, say, things like brain size. And I think we'll be hearing uh, from Rob Barton about some of those kind of comparative analyses later on this afternoon. We can also test hypotheses about sequences. One of the things that the comparative psychologists were really interested in was sequences or ordering of changes. Trees give us a way of doing that without assuming that the sequences will be linear. We can also use these trees to test for adaptive couplings of correlations between uh, different uh, uh, traits in organisms. So these methods have absolutely revolutionized evolutionary biology today, and you would expect that they would be widespread in the study of comparative cognition. But they're not. Instead, uh, we have papers like this. Uh, this is one of my own. Um, I thought if I was going to attack anybody's work, I should attack my own, really. Uh, instead of detailed comparisons amongst closely related species, uh, inferring kind of incremental change and testing uh, evolutionary hypotheses, instead we have rather oddly and not particularly naturally motivated comparisons between crows and humans. And the kind of game that lots of people who play the animal cognition kind of enterprise is, uh, who can uh, find the most spectacular gee whiz finding in their human-like kind of phenomena in their species? So I think in this rather embarrassing paper, uh, Gavin Hunt and myself claimed at least 
10 features of the tool manufacture of New Caledonian crows. Features such as the crafting of tools, features such as the, the use and understanding of, of hook tools, features such as cumulative technological evolution. All these things we said were present in humans, in crows, uh, New Caledonian crows. What I want to argue is, uh, We've seen lots of this in the study of cognition. I mean, I've, I'm picking in my own work, but there are lots of other examples of people claiming uh, in their species that this theory of mind or episodic-like memory or um, mental time travel, it makes no sense from an evolutionary point of view just to be comparing two species. Instead, what we should be doing is comparing closely related species uh, and looking at the incremental evolution of cognitive traits and how they might relate to changes in ecology. Because one of the problems with making sort of these simple pairwise comparisons is that it kind of leads to a miraculous view of evolution. How do you get from creatures with quite simple uh, cognitive abilities to apparently more complex things? If you've only got uh, two points of comparison, you're inclined to postulate some kind of miraculous jump, some great leap forward. Uh, whereas, when we come to study, as evolutionary biologists, morphological evolution, what we typically do is build phylogenies of closely related species and look at, say, incremental tweaks in developmental processes that might produce the, the different uh, morphological uh, adaptations that we see. So, although the critique of Hodgson and Campbell was powerful and a long time ago, I think a major problem has been that uh, comparative psychologists have not thoroughly adopted uh, phylogenetic thinking. What I want to do is just sketch some examples of places where people have used some phylogenies and try and uh, urge you and them that so much more could uh, and should be done using explicit phylogenetic methods, both to uh, study differences uh, of cognitive abilities between species uh, and also differences in cognitive ability and culture within our own uh, species. So this talk is going to be a plea for the use of trees, both in explicit computational phylogenetic methods, both in the study of comparisons across species and within our own species. Okay, so some examples. There have been some cases recently where people have used kind of phylogenetic trees. Uh, here's one paper from uh, Tecumseh Fitch and colleagues uh, in Vienna, uh, social cognition and the evolution of language constructing cognitive phylogenies. Uh, and they say that these phylogenetic trees are uh, uh, mapping uh, aspects of gaze are uh, preliminary, uh, but they, they divide gaze uh, up into uh, two kinds of abilities. Uh, gaze sensitivity, that is when you're sensitive that I'm gazing at you, uh, and uh, geometric gaze following, where you're sensitive about uh, where I am looking at, uh, and you can follow and track my gaze. And they say on this tree that they have here, this phylogenetic tree, that uh, gaze sensitivity is phylogenetically widespread. And you'll notice there's not exactly a lot of exemplars. Uh, mammals tend to be mainly represented by dogs, uh, reasonable representation amongst primates, uh, a few bird species, typically rooks and uh, ravens, and the odd a reptile. But they infer from this distribution of species that gay sensitivity uh, should be, uh, was uh, phylogenetically evolved in the presence of, when the last common ancestor of all amniotes. And they contrast that with sensitivity to gaze following, which 
they say is only attested in primates and perhaps the odd mammal uh, such as dogs and maybe some corvids. And therefore, they suggest that it wasn't present in the ancestor of amniotes, uh, but might have independently evolved uh, in corvids uh, and in mammals. Now, this is a good start, I, I guess, but you kind of hope with a paper that's using phylogenies that they'd, they'd get the kind of phylogeny right. Now, for a long time we've known that reptiles are not a monophyletic group, and that birds uh, are not more closely related to, to mammals and primates than they are to uh, other uh, reptiles. This branch of the tree should actually be here. So it was good in that at least they're trying to kind of map things phylogenetically and make inferences about the ordering of evolutionary changes, but a bit of a pity that the, the phylogenetics is 40 years out of date. Okay, there, 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 are, there are better examples. I think a rather nice paper by uh, Decourt and Nikki Clayton looked at um, caching behavior in corvids. And this varies widely and might be thought to reflect different cognitive and neural adaptations. In fact, has been claimed to reflect different cognitive and neural adaptations. And what they did, and it's a bit hard to see on this figure, but what they did is they divided caching behavior, that's storing food, uh, into not being present uh, in these corvids, to being uh, present moderately, that is used occasionally throughout the year, to being specialized um, caches. That is relying in one particular time of the year almost exclusively on caching and perhaps having some adaptations for that caching behavior. And what they found was, and you can see this mapped in the, the dark boxes on this phylogenetic tree, is that there were at least two independent origins of specialized food caching. Uh, and there's some uncertainty here. There could, there could uh, equally likely have been five different origins of the specialization in caching. It depends a bit on the kind of the details of the mapping and the inference. Uh, but even if there's only two, what it suggests, therefore, is that the neural and the cognitive ways that the specialized uh, caching has evolved might be different, given that these are parallel evolutionary uh, events. Now, I think this is a really kind of excellent start, and there's been some good work done looking at kind of comparative neuroanatomy in relation to kind of caching behavior. But one of the kind of tragedies is that this is this tree, uh, in terms of modern phylogenetics, what we like to do is have not a single tree, but a set of trees sampled uh, in proportion to their posterior probability. So we can look at uncertainty in the estimation of the tree. And that might matter quite a lot for some of these differences in scenarios. For example, uh, if some of these branches were moved slightly, it would change the likelihood of the numbers of independent gains uh, in specialized uh, caching uh, behavior. So the, the kind of details of the phylogeny and details about the certainty in our estimation of the phylogeny are really going to matter when it comes to making these kind of inferences. Okay, what about in some species closer to ourselves? Uh, what about comparative cognition using phylogenies in primates? Well, there was an interesting paper done by uh, Hahn and colleagues uh, where they looked at uh, understanding about spatial relationships. Now, imagine this is you, there you are, and there's a number, you're sitting at a table, and here I am, the experimenter, and I lay out on the table some uh, cups, and I place food in the cup to your left uh, of those five cups. And then we come around, you come around here, 
and I ask you where you think the food is going to be. Now, one of the things that psychologists have been interested in is cross-cultural differences in uh, spatial understanding and spatial representations. Now, if you represent the relationship uh, from your own point of view, from a sort of egocentric perspective, uh, then you would think that the food would be here, because it would be on your left. If you represent things and understand things in terms of uh, the relationship to local objects, and this was a dividing frame here, you would expect that the food would be uh, here. I think have I got that right? Yes, because that would sort of mirror that. Uh, and if you have a sort of bird's eye view, a sort of geocentric view of what was going on, you might expect that the food would be there. Uh, so in the simple kind of task, you can get uh, an insight into uh, the way in which people uh, spatially understand the world. And one of the nifty things that the authors did was to do a sort of stripped-down version of that kind of experiment with primates, uh, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, uh, and four-year-old children. Uh, and they just contrasted a sort of egocentric view with a sort of external frame of reference view. And what they found was that across these great apes, uh, the, the, the orangutans, the gorillas, the chimpanzees, and the four-year-old children did much better when the tasks were presented uh, in an allocentric way, not the egocentric way that I guess probably a lot of you would have assumed was the kind of default state. And what they argued on the basis of this is that we do have evolved dispositions about spatial representation. From our primate ancestry, we come to the human lineage not with a blank slate, uh, but with some dispositions. And the dispositions are not to represent and conceive of things from a sort of inwards-out point of view, uh, but from an external frame of reference. And they also noted that, of course, as lots of psychologists have noticed, there can be considerable cultural variability in the way in which uh, these uh, initial cognitive biases are shaped by language and culture. So, for example, in uh, Western uh, adults and children, uh, and this was a Dutch sample, uh, they do actually much better in uh, the egocentric version of the task, whereas in the Hyom, a, a Khoisan hunter-gatherer group of uh, foragers, they do much better uh, in uh, a geocentric or allocentric kind of framework. So the analysis they had using the kind of simple phylogeny and comparing both across primates and across human cultures was that in terms of spatial relationships, we have an evolved disposition to represent things uh, allocentrically, but this can be shaped and indeed changed by uh, local cultural fac factors. Okay. Um, that concludes what I want to say mainly about comparisons across uh, species. Um, but there are, of course, some people who think that we shouldn't be doing comparison or any kind of comparison is unnecessary. Some rather famous people who think that uh, you can work everything out from first principles if you're kind of smart enough, I guess. Uh, Noam Chomsky famously or infamously said, I have not hesitated to propose a general principle of linguistic structure on the basis of an observation of a single language. Now, nothing could be more annoying for an evolutionary biologist than the idea that comparisons don't really count, that they don't really matter. The heart of evolutionary inferences is in comparisons, is in the understanding of, of variation. Therefore, I mean, this is just an utterly kind of mysterious uh, statement for me. Um, 
but it makes lots of sense to generative linguists, I understand. Um, what about with evolutionary psychologists? Now, evolutionary psychologists, uh, and by this I refer to the, 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 the members uh, not of the broad uh, evolutionary psychological variety, but of to the, the narrow capital E, capital P, Santa Barbara church variety. Now, for them, what they're really interested in is uh, unique human cognitive adaptations. Uh, so they're not particularly interested in things you might share with other primates. Uh, and they are interested in things that they think might be universal, uh, that reflect the, the moulding by natural selection to fit our kind of life on the savannah and the Pleistocene. So they uh, don't care about comparisons with primates. Uh, and in principle should be concerned about uh, comparisons within humans, but tend to generally, but tend to pay these kind of lip service. Why might that matter? Well, I had my kind of first instincts of why this might matter. Uh, I mean, cross-cultural psychologists have known for a long time that it might matter, but I had my first inklings when a colleague of mine, uh, a young social psychologist, came to the University of Otago, and he'd been doing these experiments on sort of competitive games with undergraduate psychologists undergraduate psychology students. And they worked brilliantly uh, back in Santa Barbara. But when he came to Dunedin, he couldn't get the students to compete. Uh, and I said to him, look, mate, you know, New Zealand, we're a very fair egalitarian society. What did you expect? Uh, and he kind of looked at me and kind of groaned. And then I suggested that maybe what he should do is just change the framing of his games, that if he frames it in terms of sport, uh, all would be fine. And, and sure enough, uh, when he framed it in terms of sport, he got massive competitive uh, effects. But why have psychologists had this sort of preoccupation with uh, you know, undergraduate first-year psychology students? There's, there's a lovely article, a lovely target article in Brain and Behavior Sciences about how this species of humans is, in fact, the weirdest species uh, in the world. Uh, here they are. Weird. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and, and democratic. People from these societies, kind of societies, are, in terms of the diversity of human history and human current cultures, the absolute exception. And you might think, well, maybe that relates to kind of, you know, competitive economic games type tasks, but, you know, maybe not the kind of core aspects of psychology. Certainly nothing like kind of visual processing. But, one of the nice examples they provide uh, from a paper by Segal is the uh, Mueller-Lyer illusion. Now, if you look at those two lines, and as I look at those two lines, I am quite convinced that B is, is longer, whereas everyone, I guess, knows that this is actually a visual illusion. They are of equal length. Uh, what the paper by Segal et al. did was to look across cultures, and uh, this is a measure of how much longer this line had to be made in percent terms before people said that they were equal. Now, sand foragers are extremely accurate. They don't get fooled uh, hardly at all by this illusion. Um, Zulu do a bit, but the people who get fooled the most, the people who are the weirdest, the people who are the most exceptional, uh, are the weird ones. Here's Evanston, I think a suburb outside Chicago. So the species most studied by psychologists on, this kind of t on all kinds of tasks, really, are the ones that are the kind of outliers. Comparison really does matter. Well, what about some examples that 
you know, the kind of paradigmatic examples of uh, capital E, capital P, evolutionary psychology in action. Well, uh, one of the ones that uh, is often cited, in fact, I looked it up, um, a study by Devarinder Singh in 1993 has been cited uh, 573 times according to Google Scholar, it goes down as one of the classics, was on waist to hip ratio preferences uh, in, in humans. And of course it meant kind of undergraduate American psychologists. What Devarinder Singh uh, observed was that throughout recent uh, time there seems to be some appeal uh, for women who have an hourglass, hourglass figure. Uh, uh, waists narrower than their hips. And somewhat bizarrely, what uh, Singh did was to troll through Playboy magazine and uh, Miss America uh, pageant winners and note its research in psychology. Um, and note that although there's been a downward trend in the, 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 the sort of idealized kind of weight, there appears to be a remarkably stable uh, preference for a waist-to-hip ratio of 0.7. So one of the ways in which this was particularly novel and nifty was that although people, the folk psychology might have been a, that people like a kind of hourglass figure, this theory seemed to be saying something very specific. The claim was that this was an index of optimal reproductive kind of fitness, that women with uh, that kind of shape uh, were the ideal mate, and therefore that there should be strong male preferences for them. So what Devarinder Singh uh, did was to give them these cartoon drawings of women uh, with uh, ranged into three kind of weight classes, uh, a so-called underweight, an underweight group, a so-called normal weight group, and uh, a so-called overweight group. And they had to indicate their preferences for these uh, cartoon-shaped figures. And what they found was that uh, in the three weight classes, uh, underweight, allegedly normal weight, and allegedly overweight, the overwhelming preference, the strong preference, was for women with waist-to-hip ratios of, of 0.7, or drawings with waist-to-hip ratios of 0.7. Now, uh, there's a number of problems with this, uh, one of which is that a sort of basic kind of principle in the psychological design, so your prediction the, the sort of, of what the optimal choice should be is that a, is that a threshold that could be a, a kind of floor effect. Maybe if you gave them a choice for even more extreme, perhaps for totally pathological waist-to-hip ratios, they might prefer that. And maybe if you think of sort of basic psychological mechanisms being recruited rather than domain-specific ones, maybe this is just a supernormal stimulus, uh, some expression of sort of uh, hyper-feminine difference. It's a marker of differences between men and women. Maybe this is just a slightly stronger signal. So what Megan Heaney and I did was to give uh, men the choice between a range of different waist-to-hip ratios, including those going outside the normal weight range, way down to the completely uh, pathological and bio biologically impossible waist-to-hip ratios of 0.5. And what did we find? Well, what we found was that they actually preferred, there's very little preference for the waist-to-hip ratios of 0.7. The overwhelming preference was for women in the so-called normal weight range with the waist-to-hip ratio that's outside the kind of biological range, the snap at the waist, waist-to-hip ratio of 0.5. Okay, so there's some sort of fundamental design problems with this uh, classic bit of uh, evolutionary psychology. 
And there's also some comparative problems. Uh, because it turns out that when people went and looked in other cultures, the responses were uh, predictably perhaps entirely different. Uh, in a study by Ewan Shepard, uh, where they went uh, to Peru, uh, to the Matsugenka, uh, and uh, got them to do a sort of similar version of the task, the preference uh, was for a uh, woman in uh, this weight class with waist-to-hip ratios uh, of 0.9 and uh, in the so-called allegedly overweight. Uh, these women with waist-to-hip ratios of 0.7 uh, were regarded as sick, and when they asked them, they said, yes, they look sick, they're you know, obviously unhealthy, probably full of parasites. Okay, so the, the point so far has been the comparison matters, uh, but we should, should be able to do a lot more than just say we need to compare, we need to kind of look at kind of cultural variability. We should be able to do something systematic and coherent with it uh, in an organized way using tools from evolutionary biology. So uh, how am I going for time? Am I all right? All right, good. Um, so basically what I want to tell you about is uh, a study that uh, I did with uh, Tom Curry and Ruth Mace from, from UCL uh, on the evolution, uh, uh, a study of cultural evolution, on the evolution of political complexity or social and political complexity. And uh, a sort of big kind of fascination for um, uh, anthropologists, uh, has been how did humans go from uh, relatively egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies to the kind of creatures found in places like this with uh, considerable inequality uh, and considerable uh, social and political complexity, uh, not to mention lots of rules about what you should do at dinner. Well, we thought, um, what we have tools from evolutionary biology about how we can test scenarios about incremental changes. We have ways of testing things that don't require you fit them into a linear scale. And one of the problems with kind of earlier studies of uh, kind of this, the evolution of political complexity was that people associated evolutionism with a kind of linear and progressive view. Um, imagine we had a scenario that said you go from uh, character state one to character state two to character state three. Now, if we looked at the mapping of that character state on the simple tree, you can see that character state would fit, uh, that tree and the mapping of the characters on it would fit well with that scenario. Whereas, if the tree looked like this, uh, it would not fit as well with that kind of scenario. You'd have to infer, instead of the ancestral state being state one, the ancestral state was actually two, and there were uh, independent changes to state one here and to state three there, state one there and to state three there. So we can use phylogenies and the fit of characters on them to test hypotheses about the sequence uh, of uh, cultural and cognitive changes in evolution. And it turns out that anthropologists have postulated that just about anything is possible when it comes to the evolution of political complexity. Under um, one scenario, and we, we divided them up into kind of four possible kinds of social organization here. Uh, acephalous societies where uh, there's no kind of hereditary ranks, where uh, there's no ability to kind of pass on your kind of social status. People compete uh, for, for social status in various kind of transitory ways. 
uh, sort of famously uh, in uh, uh, the, the Motu society, people compete for status through bouts of competitive uh, eating. Those who can eat the most uh, are the most dominant. But obviously that's not something that can be done forever. Status comes and goes. Uh, the next step up might be simple chieftains, where you've got uh, one level of jurisdictional hierarchy. A level up from that might be complex chieftains, where there's two levels of jurisdictional hierarchy, the folk, chiefs, and then the paramount chief above them. And finally, the kind of society we're in today uh, in, in England, where there is a state-like level of organization. So what uh, Tom Curry, Simon Greenhill, Ruth Mason, and myself did was to look at uh, Austronesian societies uh, spread across uh, island Southeast Asia and the Pacific, and to map those uh, character states onto uh, a language phylogeny, a tree based on basic vocabulary, uh, which was shown uh, maps rather well onto the kind of population history uh, of these Austronesian-speaking uh, cultures. And what we did and what we did was use the mapping of these different states of social organization to test between those kind of different evolutionary scenarios. So you might like to ponder which one you think is going to win. What we did more formally is to calculate a Bayes factor to statistically estimate which of these different models was the best fit to uh, that uh, evolutionary tree. So under a rectilinear model, uh, political complexity can only increase, and it can only increase it can increase incrementally from acephalous societies to simple chieftains to complex chieftains to states. Under a unilinear model, it can rise and fall uh, incrementally. But uh, no big leaps forward and no collapses are allowed. And then there are other models when kind of anything's possible. And what we found was that the, uh, the best fitting model supported uh, strongly the only incremental rises in the evolution of political complexity were possible. Uh, these estimates of the rates of transition between states uh, for big jumps uh, were not significantly different from zero. Uh, so the best model was actually a unilinear model which allowed incremental gains and incremental decrements in uh, political complexity, but it was closely followed by one which allowed uh, bigger collapses in political complexity. So that's uh, one example of what can be done using the kind of uh, inference methods and the kind of tools that uh, are routinely used in evolutionary biology uh, and how it can be applied to, the, uh, to understanding uh, cultural diversity. Uh, what about the interplay between cultural diversity and cognition? Well, a kind of famous battleground for uh, that kind of debate is language. Uh, where there are highly polarized views about what constrains language. One of the sort of fundamental tasks that linguists have is to understand the nature of constraints on linguistic variation. There are about 7,000 languages spoken now. Some have uh, as few as just a dozen contrastive sounds. Some have more than uh, 100. Uh, some have complex patterns of uh, word formation. Others have relatively only simple words. Uh, some have words, have verbs at the beginning of sentences, some have verbs in the middle, and some have verbs at the end. So understanding the nature of this linguistic diversity uh, and the constraints on it is a sort of fundamental enterprise. Uh, and to somewhat, well, to very definitely sort of cartoon the different kind of positions on this, uh, I've got three kind of exemplars here, and I kind of apologize, this is rather 
you know, caricaturing their views. But uh, under a sort of earlier Chomskyan account, under a sort of pr principles and parameters type account, it was the uh, innate structure of the human mind that imposed the sort of fundamental constraints on the nature of variation. Uh, under uh, the sort of account from jo people like Joseph Greenberg, uh, there wasn't sort of uh, parametric, tight parametric constraints on variation, but rather sort of innate statistical tendencies uh, that might interplay with uh, cultural phenomena. And then a view which I'm going to associate here with Stephen Levinson is that culture really trumps cognition when it comes to language diversity. Now, it, it is clear that there is constraint. Not everything seems to have been possible or at least realized. If we look, for example, at the sort of global distribution of, say, patterns in word order, we can see plotted on the kind of globe here uh, that languages where the object is before the verb typically have uh, post positions. And that is that where there's a blue outer ring, there'll also be likely to be a blue inner ring. And you can see an exception there, but by and large, where there's a blue outer ring, there's also a blue inner ring. And conversely, languages that have the verb before the object typically have prepositions. Now, Greenberg famously summarized these two kind of statistical uh, uh, generalities uh, as is word order universals number three and four. Languages with dominant uh, VSO order, he said, are always prepositional, put man, dog, in canoe, versus languages with normal SVO order are postpositional, man, dog, put canoe, in. Now, uh, while I freely acknowledge that uh, these days perhaps Chomsky would see these as just very superficial uh, kind of aspects uh, of language. Nothing like the kind of uh, deep, 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 hidden, 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 uh, minimal, uh, to be undetectable kind of things that he's currently interested in. But in the past, I just have to point out that he was very positive about these kind of word order universals. And the full quote is, uh, when talking about Greenberg's work, there have been very productive, uh, there has also been very productive study of generalizations that are more directly observable. Generalizations about word orders we can actually see, for example. The work of Joseph Greenberg has, has been particularly instructive and influential in this regard. These universals, talking about the word order universals I've just mentioned, are probably descriptive generalizations that should be derived from principles of universal grammar. Well, he's kind of abandoned universal grammar these days, but um, you get the point. And some linguists ha haven't. Here you can see some work by Baker where he's attempting to derive these word order universals from a sort of principles and parameters type uh, account. Now, what we could do is try and test uh, these things by just looking at these kind of statistical patterns. We could just count up the number of blue, uh, blue rings with blue inners and uh, red rings with, with red inners and get some uh, kind of frequency measure uh, of the, the correlation. But that's not okay. It's not okay because uh, languages and cultures like biological species uh, are not statistically independent. They're related through patterns of descent. Uh, and, um, so, and linguists have for a long time been aware of this. So for example, you couldn't just take uh, a language here and a language here as independent samples because they might reflect inheritance from a kind of common ancestor. 
But even sampling wider part uh, languages doesn't guarantee that you've got statistical independence. What you really need, as evolutionary biologists understand, is the actual phylogeny and the mapping of the character state changes on that tree. So here you can see uh, a, a sort of idealized tree, a simple tree with two straight, uh, two character states or two traits mapped on it, each with two states, a red and a blue. And you can see here, this is what uncorrelated character evolution between those two states would look like. And here's what correlated character evolution between those two states would look like. Now, using the kind of statistical methods uh, derived from uh, sort of Bayesian phylogenetic inference, what we can do is test between these different scenarios. We can quantify the, the relative fit of an uncorrelated model of evolution versus a correlated model of evolution. So in an uncorrelated evolution model of evolution, the two traits would just evolve independently, whereas in a correlated model of evolution, there would be uh, dependency between those evolutionary transitions. And what uh, Michael Dunn, Simon Greenhill, Stephen Levinson, and I did was to take uh, four language families from around the world, uh, the Bantu language family, the European language family, the Austronesian language family, and the Utuistekan language family, where we had phylogenies based on basic vocabulary, and to map different aspects of word order onto uh, those phylogenies, and use these analyses to test claims about word order universals. Now, according to Joseph Greenberg, there should be functional dependencies between all these different aspects of word order. Uh, Matthew Dreyer, uh, who provided the, the main source of data we had through the fantastic uh, Wells Atlas of uh, Linguistic Structures, um, uh, he claims a, a rather narrower set uh, for the functional dependencies in, in word order. Uh, we supplemented uh, some of Matthew's data a bit uh, so we could get as, as much uh, as we possibly could for the, the quantitative comparisons. What did we find? Well, we found in contrast to the kind of strong predictions that there should be these uh, tendencies uh, universally across these language families, that actually they tended to be lineage specific. The patterns of uh, these lines here indicate uh, where the dependent model uh, was supported with a base factor greater than five, indicating strong support for a dependent model, a correlated model of character evolution. So whether are these big, thick black lines, that indicates that there was significant correlated evolution between those aspects of word order. Uh, and where they're not present, that means that the, the base factor was less than five. And what you can see is that in Austronesian, there's, uh, as predicted by Greenberg's word order universal, so there's a strong dependency between adposition and noun order and object verb order. Uh, but that's not found, for example, in the Uto-Aztecan language family. Uh, and if you look across Austronesian, Bantu, Indo-European, and Uto-Aztecan, you can see that there are strikingly different uh, patterns of functional dependencies in word order. And even whether they're in common, for example, the dependency between object verb order and adposition noun order in Austronesian and in Indo-European, when we look in a more detailed way at the evolutionary transitions, the transitions we estimate between those different states, we can see that the evolutionary pathways are actually different. So although 
kind of from a broad point of view, there's, there's some common pattern there. The local processes leading to that common pattern have once again been lineage specific. Uh, now, Stephen uh, and myself, in my rather unguarded moments, went around saying this shows that at least with respect to word order universals, this shows that culture trumps uh, cognition. That's not really what I want to say. Um, what I want to say is that these methods uh, derived from evolutionary biology, using phylogenies, give us a way of testing the interaction between local cultural and linguistic processes and uh, perhaps some evolved cognitive biases. It could have been that results could have turned out very differently. Uh, and I want to emphasize that when I'm talking about local kind of processes that might produce, uh, say, the difference between this pattern and this pattern, I don't mean culture in some very broad way. I mean local processes such as the fact that Austronesian languages tend to form their adpositions from, from verbs uh, that already exist. That kind of formation doesn't typically happen in Indo-European languages. Okay, to conclude with probably my favorite quote. Um, from, uh, I think, a comparative anatomist, uh, or comparative neuroanatomist, uh, Innocenti. Innocenti said, until recently I believed in a direct line from rat to cat to monkey to man. These species formed, and still do, a substantial proportion of the animals which I could and still can identify with, by, with certainty and by name. My belief was shaken when I realized that the existing animal species are rather like the fruits of a tree a strange tree which produces different fruits on different branches. The problem with evolution seems to be that all the fruits are on the ground and the tree has gone. If we could put the fruits back on their tree uh, in their original position, we'd be much closer to understanding evolution. What I hope I've argued in this talk is that whether it comes to uh, comparisons of cognition uh, across species or comparisons of cognition and culture within our own species, what we should be using is the tools of computational evolutionary biology to put these cultural and cognitive fruits uh, back on the phylogenetic tree. Thank you.